Season 3, Episode 8, Should You Use VST2 or VST3 Plugins? There's actually quite a lot to talk about regarding VST, and that's what I want to cover in this episode. But a little backstory. So when I first started, uh, it was on VST2, 32-bit. Then it started to getting introduced to 64-bit, which means that now there's way more access to the amount of RAM on your computer. And one thing to mention is now with Windows 11, 32-bit is even no longer supported because it requires a minimum of four gigabytes of RAM, which means that there's no 32-bit of Windows 11. So what was happening in the early years of plugins was it went from 32-bit VST2 to 64-bit VST2. All right, so this is all in the VST2 world. And then now what's happening is now we are transitioning to VST3. So the question you should ask yourself is, do I need to use VST2 anymore? And that's what I want to tackle in this episode. Again, don't forget about my free book. It's called Five Keys to a Successful Beat. So simple, it becomes creative. Go to itsgratuitous.com forward slash five keys. Sign up with your name and email and you will get the free book, some free training and special pricing to the platform with over 30 FL Studio courses where you can take advantage of the course pathways. The course pathways is a super easy way to learn how to make beats and what it is is you simply just follow the courses in order for the most simple way to learn music production it's essentially like a college curriculum for beat makers right on the platform really organized again you can start slow by going to itsgratuitous.com forward slash five keys download the book check out the free training and then jump into the platform if you're interested with the special pricing Okay, so I talked to you a lot about standards. Standards are actually really, really important for cohesiveness. And what I'm saying is what happened regarding MIDI, M-I-D-I, because we are going to be talking about VST here in a moment, but I want to first start with MIDI, okay? So MIDI is actually super, super cool because what happened was all of these music companies way back in the day were creating all their different hardware, but... If they did not agree on a standard, people were not able to use the equipment with different equipment. For example, if you had a synthesizer and then you want to plug that into a sound module, you would not be able to do that if it wasn't for MIDI. In this case, a standard like that is really, really good. All these companies came together, they created a standard. Something like the standard of MIDI is what like the world should be following when it comes to standards. A lot of times when we talk about standards, we kind of get it confused in regards to if there is a company and they have a proprietary format, for example, let's just say Apple, and they always have to try to change like their connector and stuff like that. So in that case, it's really not like a standard. It's more of like a form of control, if that makes sense. A standard is something that makes things easy for everybody, such as MIDI, right? It's a simple connector. If you had a Roland keyboard, if you had an Alesis keyboard, even like an M-Audio MIDI keyboard, you were able to use MIDI, a MIDI cable to plug into different hardware and all of this equipment could work. And so essentially it allowed musicians as a whole to work with any piece of equipment. And that is what I'm saying that it's so awesome. And so I wanted to start with that story because VST essentially came to solve a similar problem, except the only difference is, so VST is owned by Steinberg, and I really don't understand like uh, the licensing and all that kind of stuff because I have not developed a plugin myself. But anyways, 
for a while in the very, very beginning stages of music production, they were struggling in regards to what format should you use. You may have heard of AU units for Mac. You may have heard of like uh, DirectX plugins for Windows. If you're just dealing with just Pro Tools, they have so many different uh, formats. They have like the AAX, the RTAS. But what happened was VST came out and it was essentially kind of like the one catch-all that all developers can start using. So just like how MIDI came in and it was like the standard that allowed all your equipment to kind of work together, which is awesome. That's really what you need in the music world, right? VST kind of came in like the same way and it just allowed all developers to use one format. It doesn't really matter what you know software you're using, even if it's music production software or even other software that requires audio. Many times you could be bringing in your VST plugins. And that's why I say to you that if you get a high quality set of VST plugins, those plugins can follow you anywhere you go on your computer. And the thing is you learn them really well. It allows you to work faster. It allows you to train your ear quicker. I'm always just talking about workflow, okay? So to answer the question now and focus on the topic of this episode of what, you know, should you use VST2 or VST3? So I would recommend using VST3 wherever you can, but you have to understand that sometimes software is not up to date. So sometimes you can't use VST3. Thankfully, FL Studio is usually really, really quick to adopt these new standards and they do make sure that it's not that buggy or anything, but I really, really like that because it allows you to be up to date on the newest trends. They have supported VST3 for a long time, and so I have been using VST3 for all the plugins that have VST3 compatibility. We'll talk a little bit about the difference between VST2 and VST3 near the end of this, but in short, use VST3 because it's going to allow your projects to have the longest compatibility in the future. Now, sometimes software is not up to date, which means that you are restricted to using VST2. And so in other words, if you have the choice to install your plugins, sometimes it would say, do you want to install the VST3 version, the VST2 version? If you only make beats in FL Studio, you only need to install the VST3 version. If you are using other software that requires the VST2 version, then you will want to install both the VST3 and the VST2 versions. When you make beats in FL Studio, use the VST3 version so that your projects are most compatible in the future, and then you'll have to use VST2 for any other projects, okay? So at the moment, it's kind of like that transition stage when it was like 32-bit VST2 and 64-bit VST2, and now we have VST3, okay? So it's kind of like that transitioning is happening. Now, a couple of things I wanna say regarding VST3. When it comes to VST3, what makes it really unique is that it has to live in what's called the common files folder on your computer. And it actually has the VST3 extension. This, I think is powerful, but at the same time, I don't like it. And let me just talk about VST2 for a second. So VST2 is in the DLL format. You are able to install it anywhere on your computer and then you can simply load it into FL Studio, no problem, from anywhere, which means that you are able to have one custom music folder. You are able to keep everything backed up in sync if you wanna use your studio computer, if you wanna use a laptop. Everything was really easy to keep in sync. Now VST3 has to live in that common files folder. 
This is good because it's one central location, which is what it should always have been because back in the day when you were installing your different plugins, um, it was always putting it into the VST plugins folder. And sometimes they would put it in like a Steinberg and then VST plugins. So in other words, there was no standard and your plugins would end up being all over your computer all the time, whether it's a 32-bit, 64-bit or VST3 you had no idea what was going on. And that's why I always was talking about my custom music folder because I like to know exactly where my files are. I know where I can back stuff up. If I want to purchase a new computer to transfer files over, I'm telling you the process was so easy. If you do want to learn about the custom music folder, check out my course. It's called a specific music production folder. It breaks it all down. All right. But anyway, so VST3 has to live in the common files folder. This is good because it's one central location, but in some areas it's kind of annoying because if you have really, really big plugins, it can take up a lot of your SSD hard drive space. But at the same time, a lot of times the VST can actually access the sounds off of a different hard drive because sometimes a lot of these romplers, especially in the cinematic industry these virtual instruments can get huge in file size like we're talking like huge that is one reason why i always say be careful with the amount of plugins that you're using because you have to understand the larger your files are and the more files you have the longer your backups take on your computer too so my mindset is i always like to have minimal I want to be able to have the highest quality. I want to be able to have the most versatility and variety, but that doesn't always mean that you need to have millions of sounds and that your hard drive needs to be huge. So I'm only speaking from years and years of experience there, okay? One thing to mention there is a lot of times there's really no announcement to these things. It just kind of happens over time and people just kind of figure out as, you know, as you go along. Now, what are the benefits of VST3? So I actually created a video about this. VST3 versus VST2, and a lot of people want more information on it. And the thing is, a lot of the things regarding VST3 are typically for developers who are developing the plugin. And we as the end user, we really don't see too much of a difference. The main difference that we will experience is many times VST3, you can resize the window. Another benefit of VST3, which is probably the best one, in my opinion, for workflow, is many times VST3 plugins allow you to right-click on knobs to be able to create an automation clip, or you can right-click it to copy the value. VST2 plugins in FL Studio, if they're third-party, many times you are not able to right-click them to access the normal right-click menu. You would have to go to like to tools and then, um, you know, you'd have to do an alternative way to access this right-click menu. As the end user, we really don't see too much difference. Sometimes the developer will say you will see very, very minimal CPU improvement when you're using VST3. But in my experience, we're usually just able to resize the, the GUI, the GUI, the graphical user interface. In other words, we're able to resize how the plugin looks on our screen. And many times we can right click knobs in a VST3 plugin for just a way better workflow and to treat it as if it's kind of like a native plugin in FL Studio. Again, I'm specifically speaking to FL Studio users. They like to be up to date where they can and VST3 they have adopted very early on and they have worked out pretty much all those bugs. One thing to say is if you have the option of installing VST3 and VST2, 
And if this is a brand new plugin to you, because again, I always tell you when it comes to your music folder, do not just bring new sounds in and do not just bring new plugins in. Make sure that you are testing them and that you like them. If you like it, then it is allowed in your music folder. But if you are in the testing stage of this plugin, I would highly suggest installing the VST3 version. Try it out and make sure it's not buggy in FL Studio. If it is buggy, then you're going to have to use the VST2 version, okay? And one final thing I want to talk about in this episode is just regarding plugins and how to purchase plugins, okay? I will leave you a link on my website. It's how to purchase the right plugins for you as a producer. I highly recommend watching it. It's totally free. It will teach you how to properly buy plugins to give you the best experience for the long term. A lot of times when it comes to this marketing, you either download a lot of free plugins or you start purchasing plugins and then you realize later on, like, oh, I don't even use this plugin. I wasted the money. Or... I ended up using these free plugins on a serious project. Now you go back to work on it and maybe you deleted it. Maybe it's hard to find now. So here is what I look for, okay? So number one, your plugins should never, ever, ever be subscription. A lot of these companies are starting to bring in a subscription model to plugins, but what you have to understand is if you stop paying for that subscription, you cannot really open your projects anymore. And if you do open them, you're not going to have the same sound as when those plugins were active, right? So don't get tricked out there. Do not support these companies who are making you opt into a subscription model regarding plugins, okay? For example, I will compare subscription, let's say, to my course platform. If you subscribe to a membership, you are given access to watch the courses, right? You can stream them. If you stop your subscription, then you cannot watch the courses. But the difference is I'm not holding your music hostage. These companies that are offering you a paid monthly or yearly subscription to these plugins are holding your music hostage, whether you know it or not. And now you know it. Okay, be very careful. Another thing I don't like that these companies are often doing is they are making you install a central piece of software in order to download all of their other software. So in other words, I will talk about, let's say, native instruments. I usually don't like to kind of pick companies apart, but in this one, I will just call out native instruments. So when I was doing my MIDI keyboard reviews, so I had the M-Audio Oxygen Pro. That's the uh, MIDI keyboard I'm currently using, but I also reviewed the Native Instruments A49. The reason I reviewed it was because it had semi-weighted keys in the 49 key model. That's really hard to find. But the main thing I didn't like about that MIDI keyboard was that Native Instruments was making you install tons and tons of software just to give you access to all of the buttons on that MIDI keyboard. If you simply just plugged in the MIDI keyboard through USB cable, there was no separate driver that you could just simply install just to get the keyboard up and running. No, you had to install all of this additional software in order to use all the features of that MIDI keyboard. And for me, it's just kind of like, that's kind of weird. Like, why do I have to install all this software? The Oxygen Pro, you simply install a driver and you're good to go. There is an additional piece of software and it's also allowed to be installed separately Okay, it's like the preset editor. And then there was also the M-Audio Oxygen Pro software manager. But the thing is, yes, this is one central place to access all the things regarding the MIDI keyboard, but you do not have to have that piece of software to use the MIDI keyboard. With native instruments, you actually have to install their kind of manager software in order to use the MIDI keyboard, which I personally just kind of think is like a red flag. It's just weird. 
When I installed the M Audio Oxygen Pro, the amount of software is super lightweight. When I installed the software for the native instruments, there was so much software just to use the MIDI keyboard. Now let's talk about virtual instruments again. So Serum is awesome for this. You simply just download an executable file. They give you a license. You're good to go. That's it. Talk about Silence One. You download an executable file. They give you a license. You're good to go. Arturia, they make you install, again, a central piece of software in order to download pigments. And I really, really like pigments. But for me personally, I would like to be able to download pigments as an executable file and enter in the license code. But a lot of people who are new, they get confused and they think, oh, well, that's how you keep your software up to date. And it's like, well, no, no, no. All of these plugins back in the day, when there was an update, a little pop-up would appear in the plugin. You simply click update and it would take you either to the website or sometimes it would even download directly right there. But many times it would take you to the website, to the download page, and you can download it that way. I'm telling you, that is the way how you want your plugins to be so that you are in full control. The more that you have to install software on your computer, the more that we are allowing these companies to take control of our music and our essentially our, our computers eventually. So an executable file, the reason why I like it is number one, it allows you to keep different versions of that plugin. So an executable file, it is the exe file. It's essentially what you double click to install the plugin, right? An exe file, an executable file. The reason I like executable files is number one, it allows you to install it on a computer that's offline. It also allows you to keep different versions of that plugin in case, let's say you install it and it's buggy or something. That's very, very wise to keep different versions of the plugin. You don't need to keep all of the versions of the different plugins because sometimes, you know, it just works good. But for example, let's say FL Studio 12, to FL Studio 20, to FL Studio 21, in my opinion, I would highly recommend downloading and keeping the latest version of that release on your computer. So in other words, keep the latest version of FL Studio 12 on your computer, just as an executable file in case you ever need to access old projects and they don't work in new projects very well. Same thing with 20, same thing with 21, etc. Okay. Because again, what's happening is things are changing within the industry. But what's happening is so many new people are coming into the industry and they just think, oh, that's normal. But the thing is, when it comes to audio, it's not normal. The audio industry has always been, and again, I'm just going to talk about virtual instruments and sound packs. You downloaded the executable file. They gave you a digital license. You activated it. It was good to go. Okay. I understand there's piracy. I understand there's theft, all that stuff. But at the end of the day, there's always going to be piracy and theft. And you're also going to have really, really good customers who want to support you as well. And then when it came to our one-shot drum samples, you want to make sure that you are installing a sound kit. I understand nowadays companies like Splice have made it a lot easier to access just one sound and stuff like that. But I'm telling you, if you really, really want a fast beat making workflow, you want to have full sound kits that are local on your computer. It allows you to go through the sound super, super quick. It also allows you to make mistakes, which is important if you want to be a good beat maker. Good beat makers know when a mistake happens and they're like, hey, that sounds pretty good. And you go with it. If you are just selecting single sounds here and there from 
a platform like that, you are handcuffing yourself and you're actually wasting so much time trying to find just that one sound because see, this is where marketing comes in. They're telling you, oh, well, you are saving money. Why are you wasting so much money um, buying all these sounds that you never use and you end up only using two sounds in a sound kit? Well, if you would listen to my advice, which is never bring in a sound kit if you don't like it to your custom music folder, okay? So whenever you find a sound kit, you go through it and you think to yourself, yeah, this is a solid drum kit. Even if all the sounds in there aren't your favorite sounds, that doesn't mean that you may not end up using them later on, but you have to go through them, make sure that they're high quality, make sure that, you know, uh, there's not like weird background noise and all the sounds. Make sure you're purchasing from a reputable sound designer or a sound kit vendor. If you like the sound kit, you bring it into your sound kits folder. That sound kit is now with your tools forever. Okay, you have to understand that because all of your beats are using all of these sounds. If you start deleting sound kits, you're going to have missing files. So you have to make sure that all of the sounds coming into your custom music folder are yours for life. All right. So if you follow that advice, I promise you, you will have way better results and you won't get tricked into the marketing. If you're just purchasing single sounds here and there, I'm telling you that you're restricting yourself from having more creativity and the ability to make mistakes, because I'm telling you as a good beat maker, you're going to make mistakes. And sometimes those mistakes could be like your best beats and you don't want to miss those moments. All right. So a lot of information. I also just wanted to kind of recap there about, you know, virtual instruments, how to purchase them, what to be careful of. Again, be careful of, of subscription stuff. For me, plugins like Serum, Silence One, I really, really like. Nexus has started to come out with a little software manager. Again, I don't really like that. Um, but again, that's sometimes just the way it goes. Same with Arturia. I really like pigments. And in order to kind of keep it updated and stuff, you have to install their central software. But again, I like, I, I really do like pigments. And again, with marketing, these companies will tell you, oh, it's a super easy piece of software. It allows you to stay updated, really easy to know, you know, with that plugin. But in reality, if you look at that software, many times they have their store baked right into the software, right? So in other words, they're just trying to put their products right in front of your eyes. And I understand it's business. It's all about selling and making money so that you can grow your business, but the old way was executable files, a digital license, you were good to go. And again, be careful with the e-licensor and iLock and stuff like that. I try to avoid all plugins that require that stuff. I, it's only been hassles for me. And I can say to you guys, be very careful with plugins that require iLocks, e-licensors, and essentially those are uh, licensing USB dongles that you put into your computer and you have to leave them in your computer. So in other words, it takes up a USB port if you don't have them plugged in, you can't use those virtual instruments or plugins. So I understand piracy is an issue, but all of these companies that allow you to install the exe file, executable, a digital license, those are some of the most popular plugins. And I'm sure that those companies are very, very successful financially as well. So uh, just be careful with all the marketing because that's what it is. It's marketing. The old school ways many times are better. Sometimes new and improved is better, such as let's say in your DAW, you create a project, you save that project, you can reopen that project and it loads all of your settings. That's such a big benefit for us. Back in the day, you know, you'd have to tweak all your knobs back to their old settings. Nowadays, you simply open a project. See, like that's, that's what we call like an advancement. That's really beneficial to us as users. But 
when it comes to a subscription, that's not a benefit to us. That's a benefit to the company. As soon as you stop paying, you no longer own your music. Okay, so be careful out there, all right? So that is this episode regarding VST2 and VST3 plugins. I would recommend using VST3 if you use FL Studio for your projects to be best compatibility. You'll have to use VST2 for other software, such as in your video editing software or stuff like that, if it doesn't support VST3. And if you guys want to stay updated with this podcast, you guys can subscribe wherever you subscribe. If you can leave a review, that always helps too. And make sure to visit itsgratuitous.com. There is so much FL Studio training on there. Everything from courses to books to this podcast. You can sign up with your email and you'll be emailed whenever I release a podcast. There's lessons on there. You know, if you want to book a lesson um, and that is it. So again, don't forget about the free book. It's called five keys to a successful beat. So simple. It becomes creative. Go to itsgratuitous.com forward slash five keys. You will get the free book, which reveals tons and tons of secrets of what I wish I knew before I started learning to, you know, become a music producer. You get some free video training. It'll be sent to you one a day and you'll get special pricing to the platform, all right? Again, the platform has 30 FL Studio courses, and you can take advantage of my course pathways. The course pathways is like a college curriculum for beat makers. In other words, you simply follow the courses in order of how I've laid them out. There's very minimal distractions. So in other words, you get in there, you start learning how the music program works, and I break down each course more in depth. And each course is not just like a simple little course. Some of the courses are four hours. Some courses are eight hours. Some courses have 10 videos. Some courses have like 30 videos. Okay. So this is a very in-depth platform. I've been teaching how to make beats for many, many years. And if you want to take advantage of it, again, start with the free book by going to itsgratuitous.com forward slash five keys. I'll talk to you in the next episode. Thanks for listening.